You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. What I would like to do tonight to get us started, uh, I'd like to lay out a couple of themes that will kind of put boundaries on on the discussion. Uh, first of all, I was grateful to have a variety of people, that the variety that we do have. We've got differences in age, from the experiencing to the experienced. <laughs> <laughs> We've got male and female, uh, minorities, African American, Asian, uh, and majority. And I think we all have, I know you each at different levels, but I think you all have a lot to bring to the table and very um, Christ-oriented and smart. So I'm really looking forward to, to what the Lord will do through the conversation. Uh, and with that comes a burden, and even though we can't speak for others, some people listening are going to expect you to be the voice of a generic group, <clears throat> and that's not really fair. But um, and maybe that's one of the things you can you can address. So I would only expect you to speak for for you from your experiences, from your knowledge. Uh, but maybe take those principles and and broaden the picture for all of us from the international uh, to domestic and, and local. Second, uh, we can demonstrate for the church and the watching world how to speak openly and still be gracious and respectful while we make each other better. So there's going to be some iron sharpening iron, but there's a way we can do that with gentleness and respect, which then puts the, the gospel on display for the, the church at large and, and unbelievers as well. So speak candidly and give each other the benefit of the doubt. And number three, keep the conversation practical and gospel-focused. It's easy to point out faults, but how does God want us to reflect Him in these circumstances? So that, that's kind of where I want to start is we're going to do some telescoping, start broad, and bring it in. So we'll start with the international world and uh, secular society, and we'll bring it to um, America and then the Western Church, and then I really want to bring it into practical steps that we as Grace Community Church can can do to address in a Christ-like manner. So with that, I'm going to toss the ball in your court and say if you have any points or questions to get us started, let's do that uh, with an eye towards first maybe some international uh, scenes because what we're dealing with is racial and ethnic diversity and how the church should respond according to the gospel that Christ has given to us. So uh, maybe Tom, do you want to start us off with some things you've been thinking about? Um, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been reading some passages, um, scripture, like Ephesians 2, um, 11 through 22, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 22. Um, you know, the interesting thing is like is that cultural barrier is not anything new. And you know, 
biblical times as well. And so um, that's a blessing that we get to learn from how the early church faced those issues. And um, from our experience, um, I'll speak because Malaysia, I think, was a very unique country in that there are um, many different cultures um, there. Um, most of the college students um, who go there to study. Uh, I was I went over to Malaysia for two years to do college ministry with a team of eight, and within three months of being there, we met students from over forty different countries. And we and how we figured that out, we had a meeting and we just started naming out countries that we knew students where they came from, and I think it was like forty three countries. Um, that's just within three months. So it was very diverse. Um, student population and over there uh, the the students cultural background was very fresh um, because they literally just came from that country they weren't like second or third generation you know born in Malaysia and their parents came from their home country um, so there was a lot of language barriers um, and so it's fascinating to work with the churches there um, which we worked with, um, I think all the churches we worked with were majority Chinese population. And uh, and so it was interesting to see how they address the cultural barriers involved in reaching these international students that were not Chinese. Um, because how they ran their church services was very Chinese-like. Um, and it, it was even different for me. You know, I'm half um, Chinese, um, but I'm, I was born in America, raised in American culture, although I had significant influence from my mother in understanding Chinese culture, uh, Chinese-Malaysian culture is still different and, 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 and let, how they did ran the worship service and how they approach relationships and community. Uh, and so, it was, it was an eye-opening experience for me, and I think uh, I learned quite a bit. Um, and it's not easy, uh, and I'll say that, that uh, because the way when we do Bible studies, um, even just the way different students interpret Scripture, when we study the Bible, it's different, you know, infected by their cultural lens. Um, but one thing was clear that those who were genuine believers still would get involved with the churches there. They would seek to serve. And even though there were significant cultural differences, um, they, they still sought to um, love and be involved as part of that body there because they knew they needed the gospel. They knew they needed to be um, a part of the body. And that is what Christ has called them to. And that was more important than any cultural difference. Um, now, one thing I admired about the church I served at is they, there were um, leaders in that church. Um, it was a Baptist church, and they, had, they didn't have elders, they had deacons. But there were deacons that, were, that really fought for, there were some um, African students, um, and African culture is very um, different from Asian culture. In America, I see even American culture is almost like polar opposite of Asian because you know, America is more independent, individualized, 
being more community oriented and just a lot of different ways. And um, but there are a lot of leader, leaders in that church that would that fought for to bring in more of the um, some African cultural values into the worship music um, and and just in the church and the ministry and how they events that they did. Um, and uh, because there was a there was probably about eight eight African students there. And it was probably a church of about 200 people. And so because they recognized that they wanted to value their culture. And um, so, yeah, I think um, that was a great experience for me. And, uh, but to this day, you know, it's, I would say it's probably one of the hardest places you can do discipleship at because there. A lot of barriers to overcome. There, there are. It, it's, it's, it, it, one thing I noticed is after being there for about six months, different personalities in our team of eight attracted different um, students from different countries. Um, I just tended to connect more easier and, and just attracted more Chinese students. And, and I, I think it's because I'm a little bit more reserved, a little bit more quiet, and I don't approach, I'm not as um, loud or approaching conflict, whereas um, the guy in my team who was more outspoken tended to connect really well with the African students, and, because they love to be loud, you know, they like, and, uh, and uh, that's just, you know, how, and, and so it was, it was interesting, I wouldn't say that was, you know, there are other teammates also attracted to Chinese students as well, but it, it was, um, or even Middle Eastern too. They're, they tend to be a more a louder culture as well, more outspoken. Um, and so I connected with some Middle Eastern, some um, Iranian students, but they tend to be more quiet. And I don't know. So um, you know, it, it varies. But um, yeah, I don't. I don't really. So cultural and ethnic tension is not only an American issue. <laughs> right. I guess one of the questions I've had, Tom, uh, you probably said this and I missed it, or I've got it by now. Were most of these people, they were they were sojourning there, they were not living there, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, one of the things that, that I would be interested in is, you know, when you mix different cultures together on a six-month or three-month basis, people tend to think, well, this is a great experience. I want to learn about these these other cultures and cultures and things. But I, I wondered in Malaysia itself, that, is there a lot of diversity culture-wise in the country? Mm -hmm. uh, and how do, do they have the the same problems we have? You know, mm -hmm. different cultures not liking each other, discriminating mm -hmm. against people, and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah, so there is a lot of diversity in Malaysia. Um, they actually their motto. One of their national sayings is, is "One Malaysia," and so they right. they and honestly, it's a front. They they want people, the world, to see them as a country that's unified among a diverse population of cultures. Um, but the predominant populations there, ethnicities, are Malay, the natives, um, Malaysians. It's a very young country, and you need to understand that as well. I think since 1953, they were preoccupied by the British. So they're still developing, but there's the Malays that make up the, the most of um, 
the Malaysian population, and then there's the Chinese Malaysians, and then there's uh, Indian Malaysians, and um, there is public racism over there, mm-hmm. um, and it's from top down to the point that they have um, different tax rates based off your ethnicity. Wow. Yeah, so they, if you're Malay, you get the biggest tax break. Yeah. If you're Chinese, you get taxed more, and then Indians get taxed the most. And so you want to talk about challenges <laughs> based off of your you know, ethnicity that you're born into, that you can see it in the how the economy is also structured too. A lot of the Indians are the ones running the street restaurants in Mamax, and then there's a lot of Chinese businessmen when you first get there as a tourist, you think, oh, this is great, you know, you see the diversity and everything. But then you start kind of learning that there is significant racism there. Um, and it's actually institutionalized. And it's institutionalized. And there's all the government positions. It may change now. It's been, it's been um, four years since I was there. But um, all the government positions are Malay and Muslim. You know, Campbell has a, has a we convert degrees in Kuala Lumpur. Okay. There's a university there. And sometimes some of their students come to Campbell for a semester. Okay. Uh, and of course, they're highly welcome because it, it's just a temporary thing. Right? You know what I'm saying? It's easy. But it's hard if, you, if it's permanent and you're living together and you, and, you, and you see these differences and people not getting along. Uh, that's, that's the thing. Now, for example, we grew up in the deep, deep, true south, as did Russell. Uh, and, and in our generation, and there's some generational things going on as well, uh, we grew up in the... Institutionalized. We grew up in a segregated society. Uh, and we also grew up in the civil rights movement. Where we were in it. Uh, so... We have seen institutionalized racism at the highest level, yeah. and so when, when you when you get to be seventy one years old and you and, and you, th- you look back we look back sixty years we look back sixty years and we and we know what we saw we know, we know what we grew up in and it was and as we would say it was a way of life and you didn't give a second thought to it because you were in the privileged class right. okay now. But you can't grow up in that and not notice something's going on. Uh, and in the deep south, and I'm sure, I like different from Marissa, she's a different generation. When we grew up, uh, black kids were often our friends. Outside, we didn't go to school with them. And we didn't do anything socially with them necessarily. But we might play. Ball together, go to the park, play ball. But the parks were segregated, so you had to go somewhere. So typically, we had to go where I lived. We had to go down to what we called Harlem, and they had playground, and we would play play football. Uh, And everybody knew everybody by the first name and got along fine. But then we went home, and we were completely separate. Uh, So we know what institutionalized racism is, and we, we. if you pick up any book on the civil rights movement, just go to the index and look for the Albany movement yeah. on town, and it will be all over the place. And it was long. And it, it was King Martin Luther King Jr. was put in jail in our hometown. Uh, they, the, the, the fire department, 
under the direction of the police department had hoses up against the wall. We saw the kids being, have that done to them. And, and it's interesting how the younger generation, we were the young ones, we were the kids. We would look at each other and we knew that was wrong. The adults, though, didn't. Exactly. But we were young enough that we hadn't been enough. So, so now where we, so we, we, could, we, flat, we fast forward 60 years and what we see is a completely different world than we grew up in. Uh, so we see great progress. See? But, but the younger people around the table, you don't necessarily see the progress. So I think that's one of the things when you see some of the tension that, that, that comes up, particularly with older people, they, they think, well, here's a common sense. What are they complaining about? <laughs> See, things, things are so much better. Uh, and yet, and I, believe, I do believe that's true. I mean, and it is, I mean as, I, as I tell my students in law school, every once in a while we get talking about it, Martin Luther King Jr. is a national hero in the sense that he led the civil rights movement and got us through a lot of stuff. And interesting enough, Kennedy was the president and Kennedy got assassinated and a clear racist became president. Johnson, yeah. And what, but what did Lyndon Johnson do? He took the Kennedy program and pushed it. And every southern senator turned against him. But he was doing it for political reasons. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, it's an Johnson's an interesting study because he certainly said things. Now, he was the most valuable president we've ever had. And if you haven't, the, the movie's out now. If you're interested, you go see the movie LBJ. Uh, you had to put up with the custom, I'm sure, but because that's who he was. Uh, and he would use the N word. Right in front of everybody, you know. Uh, in fact, when, when he was uh, talking to his guys about appointing Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court, he said, I'm going to appoint a. But it's going to be my. This is President of the United States. Right. So, see, we grew up in that. And it's so different. And so, what I'm interested in is to hear from the younger generation about how you experience racism. I mean, I don't, I don't experience it, obviously. Because uh, I never have been in a minority setting. Uh, I never have. You know, nobody's ever discriminated against me because I'm a white man. Uh, so, so I'm, I'm more interested in hearing how. Now, from a Christian perspective, this is easy for us, in, in the sense that uh, it's cut and dry. It's easy for us as Christians. Cause when we, I mean, Diane and I became believers later in life. We were 33 years old. You, you even felt your heart change. You changed immediately toward a, a minority group. I can remember that so clearly. Yeah. That the Lord, uh, a black guy, was speaking, and I'd only been a Christian maybe six months, but I remember feeling this oneness with what he was saying and with him and I and it, it, so many times I would say this is not me this was, it was like a su you knew it was a supernatural yeah. taking place of the way he brings us so so Christ changes your heart obviously and that's why I like the title of that book mm -hmm. see uh, Tony Evans is not talking about 
diversity. He's talking about oneness. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and in Christ, we're all one. So we don't have any... It's easy for us to love each other and to get along and, 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 and be sincere about it. But you live in a... You live in a world where everybody's not Christian. Yeah. And even people who profess to be Christian can be very racist. Oh, yes. And the world is encroaching in on the, the church, as it always does. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. God doesn't yes. save the righteous. He saves sinners. Exactly. And, and I think, I think the, hardest, the hardest thing for people of my generation is we, we grew up in a racist, if you grew up in the South, or the, the North. North. Had it the North. Yeah. My dad grew up in Michigan. He, he was a racist. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, gosh. He was uh, and it just what, it was against anybody. It wasn't him. Yeah, exactly. The Hollanders. The Hollanders. He didn't like the Hollanders. I didn't know what the Hollanders were, but they kept their houses real clean and the porch is very clean. And that's what he had against them. I don't know. Who knows what he had against them? But anyway, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's interesting because you can be 75, 80, 85 years old and a believer and believe that you are not racist. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and yet you, you are racist. Right. At, at, at some level. Because you've been... You've been in that... You've been raised that way. And, but now, for us becoming believers as adults, oh, yeah. we, get a, we get a dramatic change. Now, we still got problems, you understand? <laughs> uh, but, but, but I think that when you see people who have been more believers when they're eight years old and they grew up in the segregated South, they still have problems. I think, especially for me, one of the big things that I've I've, I've learned um, is that you know we talk about we talk about unity, oneness, but I think sometimes within the church we misconstrue what that means. Okay. So unity and oneness doesn't mean uniformity. Unity doesn't mean right. uniformity. Right. It means you know that we bring our differences, and I think like kind of what you were talking about. Um, people who do come from different backgrounds. Um, I know for me growing up, when I grew up in Jacksonville, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. We were poor. We lived in a predominantly black neighborhood with other poor black people. And I moved to South, and I never experienced really anything racist in Jacksonville, at least not to my knowledge. But when I moved to South Carolina, and I went to um, small, very small southern town um, and went to, I lived at a children's home for several years in South Carolina and experienced and heard a lot of things that I never heard growing up. Um, friends of mine whose parents said, you can't date a black guy because because he's black. Not because of anything he's done. No, no other reason. But no other reason but because of his skin. And um, just things like that and even even within the church just hearing things like um you know like i know when several of i know we're getting kind of deeper into this but um when several of the black women had gotten killed by police i remember feeling this just this grief and come to church and it's like pretty much you shouldn't be grieving about this you know like we don't need to talk about this it's just wrong and there's no no sense of trying to understand um, and growing up and seeing the things that have happened, seeing people getting shot, seeing people getting killed, and just the horrific stuff, and it's just like this cycle that goes on. And like you said, 
older generation, like, things are so much better than they were when we were growing up. My grandparents say that. And it is. It very much is. Right, because there's this big, drastic change from overt racism to, but now it's not overt as much. Sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes it is, but you got to look at a lot of things, and it's very institutionalized in a lot of ways. And I think that's where the frustration comes for the younger generation is that we see that, yes, it's not as bam, running right your face, but now it's more so, and we're starting to learn. And we have people who are practicing law and becoming doctors and becoming politicians, and they're starting to see that the system has been set up not to really help people who are minorities, but to kind of, um, I mean, pretty much not to help them to succeed. And so I think that's where a lot of our frustration comes from, and frustration, too, with, um, I think sometimes there's, it feels like a lack of empathy. You know? And um, um, there were several times where things have happened in the nation where I was just in tears praying for my children, like, Lord, like, I don't want them to grow up in this, and I don't want my son to, you know, have to worry about getting pulled over or something like that, and, and how do how do we connect people who think differently, you know, um, who don't understand, how do we connect that? And so that's been one of the things that I've been, definitely been praying about, and um, I wanted to see, and I told Neil about the incident that happened at Campbell, and um, just how hurt, that, hurtful that was for me just to know that that was right there in the school that yeah, I work in. What happened? Oh, um, so a student had came to my office one day, or came to one of my coworkers' office and said that they had found a swastika drawn in the bathroom and said, white power, um, hail Trump, written in the bathroom. And they'd taken pictures, sent it to our dean and above, and um, but I was like, this is real. Like this was a student, twenty-something, nineteen teenage yeah. student, yeah. writing this. How is this still happening? You know, and that that they're in our building and they could be passing me every single day, and I just they hate me or they hate any other student of color of any mm -hmm. nation or wherever for no reason. No reason. I'm like, at least let me give you a reason not to like me. I mean, if you're not going to like me. <laughs> but um, it's just, I don't know. Like I said, like it has gotten so much better since then, but it's this subtle, this subtle, uh, this subtle you know. Right, that's not subtle there. Yeah, that's not subtle, but <laughs> other ways that have just, um, that are still just so deeply embedded in, um, and I think it needs to just be talked about like this, oh, yeah, you know? So. Well, we had we had a black student in law school, and I was dean that year. And uh, he was walking across from the law school over behind the, the shortstop, right there, where the boat complication centers now. He wasn't there then. And, and the, but those apartments were over there. Those new he lived in those apartments behind the shortstop. They were new then. And there were some Campbell students on the second story balcony, and they called him the mm -hmm. and told him get out of here. Uh, so he came to me as the dean to tell, tell me what happened. And I reported to the dean of students. I reported to the, the head of campus security. And we cut I said, can you tell me where they were, what apartment they were doing this from? And I said, well, and here's what would upset you. 
me and the campus security guy were saying, okay, let's go get them. And the dean of students said, oh, well, well, you know, they're just being, they're just being, they're just being boys. I said, no, they're, they're being people who should not be here. And, and I had to go, I had to go before the, the, the council and say, and the boys were sitting there, I said, you got to throw them out of here. Well, they threw them out for one semester. Uh, so that's still going on. And see, that's what a, that bothers you when your institution won't do it. Well, I mean, I can tell all kinds of stories. I, I moved to Arizona, and I remember I was a freshman in high school. First time I'd ever been, well, I was in a grade school in Paso in eighth grade. It was the first time I'd ever been in a grade school. And I was in a grade school in Arizona. But we had, we had Native Americans, we had black students, we had Mexicans, we had and the white people. We, and everybody, we play sports together. And that gives oneness to the guys when you play sports together. But when you went to the dance after the game, Everybody's in their corner. We had like five corners. Yeah, but I, I, the first week I was there, there was this really, really good-looking girl, Maria. And I'm going to use an inappropriate term here, but I told me, I said, what's the deal with Maria? What's the deal with Maria? And that boy says, we don't date sticks. Well, I would have said something like that, you know. Sweet everything about you. And when I, on the way to school, on the school bus from the... Williams Air Force Base to Chandler, Arizona. At Higley, at the crossroad, there's a bar. No dogs or Indians allowed on the door. So this, that's what I grew up in. But now it's different. Although you get situations like you experienced, like my lawsuit experienced about 10 years back. Yeah, and really, we don't have any, I mean, we, like you say, we cannot get ourselves in, in your position. Like y'all could, you know, we can't do that. But as, as, as Christians, we want to be able to have empathy with each other and to make and to integrate and all that to be together. And and to understand more about some of these terms that are being thrown around. Our child, our older boy is 42, he's a pastor. And he preached a series of sermons about, and he preached about white privilege. Mm -hmm. And so I said, and I was trying to get him to explain to me what that means. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example of what I said, and this shows you how... It's hard to relate. I said, well, my family was poor, cold, and Daddy had to borrow the money to send me to school. It was like $250 to go for a semester of school. He literally didn't have the money. He paid it back. I mean, it was poor, really poor. And he said, but Mom, your dad could borrow the money. And I said, okay. So it's gotten me thinking about how that all works and to recognize some of these things that you just, you know, nobody's told you before, or you're not paying enough attention, or whatever. Let's look more at some of that institutionalized um, racism. We saw it in Malaysia, where it's by mm -hmm. ethnicity, and that the ethnicity has turned into separate classes. Um, how about here in America? What have you seen or experienced as far as systemic or institutionalized um, racism or, or denial of privilege? Yeah. Um, well, this <laughs> now, this is really good. First off, it's, it's humbling to have this conversation because I'm just thankful that we can have it as a, you know, as fellow believers. Um, you know, many places you can't have this conversation and, and be this open and just feel free to talk about it without the burden of I'm going to be judged this way or looked at mm -hmm. a certain way. Um, 
but what y'all were just talking about, Marissa was hitting on it too, how it's subtle. Um, a great resource that I've listened to kind of recently uh, by a guy named Jamar Tisby, he has a podcast, uh, Path the Mic, and he talks about how uh, the racism that's experienced today is more uh, the word impersonal, you know, how, you know, in the past it was personal, it was very, you knew exactly what it was, racism, but now it's more impersonal, there's not a name to it, and so it's kind of harder sometimes uh, to, 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 you know, for people to see, oh, that's that's really racism, and it, and it really is. Um, but as far as for me, I think growing up, um, obviously I was military, so in a diverse uh, setting with many different groups of people, I wouldn't say that I've uh, experienced it head on, like somebody just came up to me and said something, um, you know, inappropriate or wrong, but there is a tension, I think, within me when uh, sometimes when I'm in a setting where I am the minority and I feel like I have to change and be somebody different. And I feel like either I have to act a certain way or behave a certain way or people are going to view me um, or just see me in a different light and I feel like I have to change who I am sometimes. And that's kind of, um, that's not what you want to experience, um, you know, and you don't want to feel that burden of having to be someone different and put on a different face or act like a different way when you're in, in one group of people than when you're with another group of people. Um, as Because fear of that, oh, maybe they think, you know, I want people to think highly of me or um, I want them to not be afraid of me because we see a lot uh, these days, and, and this goes into a you know, very deep matter. You talk about... Um, you know, we were talking about the police brutality thing, and, and obviously that's a that topic right there can go deep in many different ways. But um, just the fact that you know sometimes as a Black African American man, uh, you feel like oh, you know maybe don't they don't think I'm as smart, or maybe they don't think um, or they're they're afraid of me, or or what I'm you know just it's just the fear of the unknown. That you think people they don't really understand, you know, it's just it's just hard to to kind of um, I don't know, it's kind of hard for me to say, but like sometimes we just I just feel like I have to I, I have to be a different person. Um, you have to conform. I have to conform. You 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 have to you have to be like. Yes, okay, there you go, there you go. You feel like you have to, that's what I was going to say. You feel like I'm mommy's wife here. I need to be white. Right, so I, so, exactly, exactly. And so, I was going to say, sorry, interrupt. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, just to add on to that, because one of my points was that, you know, one of the things that we've felt a little more liberated is that we can be who we are, who we were raised to be and who we are in Christ and be fully of our culture. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of black people especially, and I don't know, maybe for Asian people and Hispanic people, maybe they feel the same way, but it is, it's like subtly, especially within the church, and not so much at Grace, I haven't really felt that, but some churches you feel like that you have to erase mm -hmm. your cultural identity in order to be within the church, if that makes sense. So, like, you know, some churches are like, we don't want, like, super loud, upbeat, 
fast tempo music that you made here in an African American church. Yeah. And you're like, well, I like that, you know, or something, but it's, I feel like we're starting to be able to be freely who we are in Christ and embrace who we are in our culture at the same time. Like, I can listen to Christian rap music and play it loud down the street and not feel like people are going to judge me for, like, oh, she's not a Christian because she's listening to rap music. No, it's Christian rap. It's God-honoring music just in a different form that you may listen to. And so I think um, that's something that we've seen. But as far as institutional racism, we... Um, I started, I'm reading this book, I haven't read it because I've been like, schoolwork and everything, but, um, yeah, and kids and work and everything else, but um, it's called um, The Warmth of Other Sons, and it talks about how, um, talks about the great migration of African Americans from the um, South, from like the early 1900s through the 60s, how they moved up North to yeah. try to get away from Jim Crow, yeah. and how even once they moved up there, how the structures and things like even zoning laws were set up to zone people in a particular area. And stuff like that you still see today. I grew up in it. I grew up in a place where there were predominantly black people and we were all poor. And the city was zoned so to keep you there and where if you lived across the river, you know, you were it's a whole different story. Even in Clinton, South Carolina where we moved from Literally, from across the trail, railroad tracks, one side where the college was, beautiful, big, two-story, three-story homes, $300,000, and the other side of the tracks where we lived, poverty. Just amazing. And this is in 2017. And, you know, there were white people that lived where we were, too, but that's how it was separated, and that's how it was zoned. And so that's a big example. That's mm-hmm. a star. Yeah, and even just through, um, we watched this documentary too called 13. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it talks about how the institutional racism of the um, the penal system and how there has been, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, and just how like there, how in the past, you know, it, it had to be more, it couldn't be as overt. So we have to find ways to criminalize certain things and. Um, but I won't go on and on about it. But those are just some examples of institutional racism that we've noticed and we've seen. And um, thank God we haven't experienced, per se, um, but we know people that have family members. I have countless family members who have been affected by these things. So. Let me offer a couple of comments before we jump in there, Tom. It sounds like... Um, Related exactly uh, the things I was thinking about from, from Scripture, um, how we see from from beginning to end. In the beginning, um, again, my reading, listening to, it seems like a lot of the, the black pastors, instead of looking to some of the Pauline letters, they first look to Genesis, that the Imago Day, that all of mankind was created in the image of God, and then we can fast forward even to Revelation, where the culmination of eternity, it's not, a, just like you were saying earlier, it's not a uniform people, it's a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So it looks like God's people is not obliterating cultural diversity. Our ethnicities and demographics 
aren't going anywhere for eternity, and yet uh, we should embrace it because, and maybe you guys can uh, second or fill in, that for the church, we should not equate culture with gospel authenticity. It's not a, a white Christianity or a whatever. Yeah, I was just going to share a personal experience just a few weeks ago when I went up to Washington, D.C. for an um, internal medicine conference. Um, our uh, club president had booked an Airbnb in a neighborhood that he didn't look at any of the reviews or anything. He just booked it because it was he got a good deal on it. Well, we started driving towards it, and it's in Anacostia. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that area. It's like zone eight, I think, what you see. And uh, we were we were driving, yeah, we were driving into it. And um, first thing I started noticing is that all the homes we were driving by had bars on them. And um, and then um, I started noticing that everybody there was African American. And, um, and you know, and I was I was I was fine with that. Um, but then we we you know we parked and. We got out, and we're all in business suits, and, and nobody else there is in a business suit. <laughs> right. We stood out a little bit, and, um, and you know, we, and we're all um, light-colored skin, too, as well. And we walk up, go inside, and then I kind of started doing some research on the area. I was just curious. And to find out that it's, it's – they did a survey, and I think it was 43% of people who live there feel safe during the day. And ten percent feel safe at night, <laughs> and yeah. that's the people who live there. Um, and then we started trying to call for dinner, like get like pizza delivery, and they would not even deliver to us. Um, once we told them the address, and yeah, and that was just a little eye opening for me, um, just because uh, it's also found out statistics that ninety five percent of the population, I think, is that eighty three thousand people live there in Anacostia are African-American. Um, and so I just started thinking, you know, in my own head, like, what if I was born here? You know, what kind of opportunities would I have as a young boy to even get out of this place? Education. Your goal. And, right. right. And um, what would life be like? And, you know, how different would it be from just the opportunities I have just from being born and, you know, with a father who's Caucasian? And I would lived in a neighborhood that was um, majority Caucasian, um, and um, it was just very eye-opening for me. And um, and so there, were, I mean, there were cop cars driving by every five minutes. And so, and and so, you know, we think, you know, we think back on what you were saying, how we have come a long ways, and and that's not, you know, Anacostia, the situation there, isn't slavery. But in a sense, they're they're kind of trapped there, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it is occupied, you know, by African Americans, and so it's um, and so, but I did I had that was something I had never experienced before. Yeah, every large city in the United States has that, mm-hmm. right? Every, right, right. And so I think um, as I've been reading articles and, and learning more um, about racial, you know division in America, um, I'm seeing that uh, the minority groups just want, f- at first, acknowledgement that there is an issue. Um, 
And uh, I think that's happening. I think it's starting to happen. Um, I think it may correct. I would love to hear your perspective on this, but it, it it seems like from from younger generation that, and I think any generation is susceptible to this. But when you go from the situation of you know Martin Luther King Jr. and seeing such a big jump in progress, you get to that point, you're like, well, things are a lot better. They're great. <laughs> you know, things are great now, and then you kind of almost. You get comfortable, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think, so for us, we're at a point where we didn't experience what you did, but now we still see where more progress can be made. Yeah, yeah. And so for us, that's why, like, to you, it's, it, I guess, so older generation, it wouldn't seem as significant as it does to the younger generation, mm -hmm. where they haven't experienced the, um, the more public racism or the, the type of racism that occurred previously. I think, too, just like Diane was saying, you could see, like, you looked at your parents and could see blatant segregation mm -hmm. taking place in society. I mean, I grew up where, I grew up in, in Maryland, and um, so great-grandparents owned land, and I mean, my, my family wasn't wealthy or anything, but I mean, my like my mom and my aunt will all say, your grandparents were racist, you know? And then, but so are, so are, were my parents and they, you know, still are to some degree. And so I grew up with like, where my parents chose, you know, to live in certain areas to go to the better schools. And um, it wasn't until we moved, we moved to um, Georgia and then, from Maryland, and then we moved to South Carolina. But in South Carolina, it was an area um, of high military population, and then there was like a pretty equal divide between African American and Caucasian culture in that area. And so that was the first time where I really had African American friends because the school was split enough to where we interacted with each other. Um, but I think like just growing up and hearing some of the comments and stuff that were said just about because people had a different skin tone or um, you know grew up in a different way that and I think a lot of that comes from not not understanding another culture not un, like growing up going overseas and living in Thailand I Thailand Unlike Malaysia, was um, majority Thai people. They were split um, with religion, Buddhism, and Muslim in the south a lot. But um, but it was ethnically Thai, so there the division wasn't um, ethnically diverse as much as economically diverse and some other factors in there. Um, but like I was the like one of I don't know a handful of white women in the city and one of the youngest white women in the city and this city had a population of a half a million you know and it's still a rural town um, but I would go to the grocery store or go to the mall and like people would stare at me all the time you know and you feel that and I, I got to the point sometimes I had lived there for seven years but at various points of 
whatever I was dealing with in my personal life, I would not want to go out in public by myself. And I'm pretty independent, and there was a lot of things I had to do independently. But And there wasn't, you know, another girl necessarily to go with me to do it. And so it was, you know, I don't know, in some some parts of that brought up, I think, some of what my friends here in the States that are ethnically diverse go through, right? Whether they're an international student coming or they've lived here their whole life and they're the minority, um, just because you stand out because of the color of your skin, you're like the zone yeah. <laughs> um, for everybody. And it's, it's like, whoa, what did I do other than walk down the street, you know, or show up in an event and I just think there's anyway there's a lot of personal things there that went on a tangent from earlier but um. I was going to mention too something that she said that kind of reminded me um, just about schools and how like people would move to go I had a story about when when I was growing up and I told you I lived in apartment complex and I remember the elementary school that I went to predominantly black school and this, we were getting ready to go into middle school, and there was a school of the arts that was in downtown Jacksonville, and they came and recruited students, so you had to audition to get in, and I was big into theater. I loved theater. I auditioned, and I got into this school, and it was, I was ecstatic. I was just so pumped about it, and had to walk two miles in the morning to go catch my bus. Six in the morning, yeah, or it probably was a little more than two miles, but um, there was no bus close enough, and my mom worked, my dad worked, and there was just, I had to walk alone. In sixth grade, where I lived, you know, early in the morning, and my, I remember my mom going and talking to the school board, like, and it wasn't just me, there were a couple other kids that went too, um, but they lived like different places, so we didn't walk together or anything, and I remember my mom begging and pleading, like, is there any way, like, we can have a, a, a bus or something oh, come? Yeah. You recruit these students here, then you don't but you have no way for them to get there. Mm -hmm. And we have one car that was somewhat reliable sometimes here and there growing up. And so I remember not being able to finish, finish going to that school. And I had to go to the school that was in our neighborhood, which was like probably a D school or D-rated school, mm -hmm. where there's fights constantly. And mm -hmm. I was getting, I was unable to do, mm -hmm. I wasn't privileged enough to go and do what I needed to do and to get to this school, you know. And so, um, and it wasn't just me, it was other kids as well, but that kind of brought it up. It reminded me of that. And um, I mean, they're just little instances of things like that that... Mm -hmm. Um, so. Yeah, and as a public school teacher, I mean, I just taught one year in the seats, so I don't understand the system in too much detail to maybe speak publicly about it. But I do know enough of like standardized tests and everything. They're written by people in public school boards, which are not at ethnically diverse enough to represent the students in some some areas, right? And then our student, our schools are segregated. The way a teacher is going to teach may be even, um, you know, different people learn different ways. And so is the learning style of the, or the teaching style of the teacher 
helpful for the learning styles of the students, and that can play into it too, whether that's ethnically influenced or just cultural backgrounds of people based on family experience. But, um, I mean, I, that's, I think, an example of institutionalized racism that we don't think about, but at the end of the day, the school's rating is based on mm -hmm. these tests, the access to materials, mm -hmm. um, the desire for certain, you know, trained teachers to go to certain schools based on the school score because of these tests, because of the students taking the test, and all that is all factored, and so it's, I don't know, it's kind of hard to look at and see our country like still there. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, I would, I would, as a former school teacher, public school teacher, I, in a pretty poor area as far as the kids are concerned. Uh, that's not just racial, that's more cultural. Mm -hmm. The poor white kids are at the same disadvantage in the sense that they can't score well on the test either. And it's not because they're stupid, but they don't have the background. Yeah, vocabulary is a huge, like, yes. if, you know, if you're a family, like, um, so I was in Harnett County last year, but I had some students that, I mean, I had one student, he did not, his mom did not even have a phone that I could contact her on, but she would write letters, and he, he was Caucasian, his mom was Caucasian, um, she would write letters in beautiful handwriting, and say, I really want my son to get help and stuff, but... You know, when I talked to her in person a few times, I was able to catch her. There's no access for him to literature. There was, I mean, she didn't have a cell phone. They didn't have, I don't think they had TV or at least not much. So they, they definitely didn't have internet. She wasn't taking him to the local library. Um, no books. No books now. No no texts at all, you know, not, no newspapers, no written literature, and, um, and that, that's a factor, right, what even exposure the mom has or is bringing into the home. And, well, you know, when my children, our, our oldest child went to school in California for three years, first, second, third grade, we knew out there then. It was a completely white school. Well, there was, one, there black was one black child. He was in kindergarten with Red. His father was a physician or something. And I can remember being at, just being at his birthday party and thinking, I mean, it was just a bunch of white children and, this, and the black family, which was fine, but I felt bad for them because, you know, they're, they're here. But anyway, here's what happened. We moved to Harney County. We go to Goose Creek School. Nicole uh, was in a room that most most of the children were African American. There were like six white kids, and his teacher was uh, a black teacher named Miss Rain. Well, he would come home and tell me he was uncomfortable, and I said, "Oh, well, you're just in a." And I knew exactly what it was, but I just said, "You're in a new school, and we're getting used to things." And then he would come home and say, "Well, some of these kids don't have their shoes are all falling apart." Mama, why are they getting money for lunch? They had, he had never seen that out there where they've got everything, you know, supposedly. All the minorities are in the city on those suburbs. It's, it's, they're 9,000 North California. No, they're not. But anyway, after a time, 
I went to Ms. Rand and I just told her, I said, Ms. Rand, we've been out there with all white people in that California school. And I said, he's just, he, he's just going to have to kind of learn to fit in and understand. And, and I was delighted that he was in a normal, I call it a normal situation. Because I'm thinking, if, you don't, if you're never around anybody that doesn't have anything, how are you going to understand that? I mean, to understand that there are people in it. And a lot of kids, and you've probably seen this with basketball, we, we helped a lot of those black kids with rides. Their, their mothers were working. And they, or they didn't have a car. Or they couldn't get to practice or whatever, you know. And, I, you just, and that was all just the way the Lord works and helps you see. That's a funny story, though, with Red playing basketball at Heart Central. Young Men's Academy, where he's going and meeting 
uh, young black men who don't have that same uh, access or privilege that we're talking about. And he's trying to be, in a sense, like you say, a father figure to them, but like really trying to really infiltrate them with the gospel because I think that's that's the main goal. And so like a big thing for African-American, I think young men who um, grow up and you see this cycle of poverty and, you know, for example, obviously imprisonment and different things like that. It's not for every single black man, of course, mm -hmm. but the family is first off that's broken up there isn't a father in the home and so i think it starts there with like the church um trying to understand that um you know that gospel is important to go out to all people and so as long as you're just i'm not i'm not saying i don't think grace does this but i'm saying there's a lot of even called reformed churches that cater to one group of people and if you only cater to that people then there's people who are not hearing the truth um, that needs to hear it because I think if you hear the truth, I think it impacts uh, what type of man you grow up to be for your family. And I think it will impact how you desire to honor your wife and how you'll live. And, um, but I think it first does start, need to start with the church because a lot of times we're silent on these issues uh, that are important. So obviously, like you were saying, we can't, this, con this is a conversation, but I think it's a conversation that needs to continue to happen on a more frequent scale so that um, people um, of, you know, minority or whatever, their perspective, you know, may be heard because I think a lot of times it, it could be silenced and you may, you, you know, you may understand one perspective, but the other perspective may not be heard. And I think hearing that perspective will help, like we say, to form empathy and hopefully to bridge relationships. I, I think it's all about somehow bringing things together yes having a having a big a big view of um obviously talk about the image of god and having understanding and appreciating differences so that we can learn to bridge and connect um on a larger scale because we obviously the main goal is that people, disciples are made and that and that um the gospel the gospel is is taught to to young black men young white men it doesn't matter what color it is um, but it needs to, to go forth, and I think it has to start with the church um, understanding the racial and ethnicities and the differences and, and understanding where people are coming from. One tool, I guess, that I learned after I came back from Thailand, but um, probably would have been helpful while I was there, is um, there's one called it the evangelism scale, and then... The name of the other one. It's called the P scale, but it's it's about cro crossing cultural barriers, and it's kind of so E zero is evangelism to people who are part of Christian families, and um, basically your same culture. So that's easy, right? Because you, I mean, we all have different family backgrounds or whatever, but you're relating humor, tech, you know, different things on the same level using language that's similar and then e1 is evangelism people outside the church but within one's culture so our, our non-christian people are of our same ethnicity um but e2 so this is three tiers away is evangelism to people of different but similar cultures so yes we're all americans um we've grown up maybe in similar states or whatever and we share 
you know, different foods that we've all grown up eating, but we still have, there's differences there. Um, and so, and then E3, fourth tier away is evangelism of people of racially different cultures. Um, so that can, that, that's where you're maybe crossing a larger barrier of, um, even nationality too sometimes. But I think the, it's helpful for me and, um, to re to remember, okay, building this relationship is not going to be as easy as building a relationship with somebody who is a very similar culture, um, and ethnicity as me. And actually it's going to take two more steps, you know, and so it's going to take maybe triple the amount of time or triple the amount of effort. And, and I think we often get, you know, scared at things not happening as fast as we, we want them to, or, um, we give up too soon when things get a little uncomfortable, but to remember that, on, that we're dealing with learning all those steps in terms of learning someone else's culture, learning language that other people use um, to relate to different things, styles of humor, styles of entertainment, styles of music maybe um, that are different from us takes takes effort <laughs> um, and and more effort than just our you know non-christian neighbor that comes from our same background um, so I've heard it uh, said that even across racial lines it's easier to talk to someone of our same culture and we're, we're exactly. different ethnicities but mm -hmm. we have very similar mm -hmm. backgrounds and similar experiences similar eco economic socio-economic classes um, and please continue adding to this but it sounds like things that we need to keep in mind is to be intentional mm -hmm. and that intentionality will require more work than talking to someone who is similar to us. Yeah, well, I, I, I was thinking, as she was talking, I was thinking, being from the Deep South, having worked construction job, the only white person on the job other than my uncle was the boss, uh, I have much easier time relating to black people uh, oftentimes than I do white people, just because we have the same sense of humor. And and as we say in my part of the world, they like to cut up with yeah. you. And I, and I like to cut up with them. But we lived in California, and there was nobody that cut up. Because yeah, <laughs> they thought it made you, if you cut up, I talked to my pastor. I said, what's wrong with these people? They, and it's like, they think if they cut up, then you might think they're stupid. <laughs> I said, they have nothing to do with this. Yeah, I find that in the law school. We, we have African-American students. And because I'm from the deep south, I haven't sought them out. They seek me out. They come to my office. I, and, it, and I haven't done anything. It's just I have the same sense of humor. They relate with. So, uh, but they see. So the culture is to me is a big divider. As much as, as much as or more than uh, race sometimes. Now race can always be a big divider, obviously. But, but uh, if you grew up in, in the south and you're used to being around a lot of black people like we grew up. It was common with us. Uh, we, we relate well to those people. 
Well, and they really will to us. Well, they like us. As Pierre was saying about, you know, like being in a group and then how are you supposed to act and all that when you're the minority. Yeah, that's the hard part. I had a friend in high school that moved from Maine, mm -hmm. and we were downtown, and I'm. And she saw a black person coming up the sidewalk. Yeah. She was frightened to death because I guess she had never seen anybody. Right. And I just said, right. I don't know what you're so upset with it. I said, it's fine. It's, you know, this is no problem. But I still can remember that. I still, she still is in my hometown. I draw these shoes. She's still in Georgia. But, but just different things that we felt more comfortable. Now. We can also, when we say some of these things, I'm sure it comes off, and our children will tell us this, that, Mama, that, that sounds racist. Because, see, we've still got things that sure. are going to be part of us till we die. Right. But now, our, his mother used the N-word. And when we became believers, we, we told her, and we had children, we said, you will not be using that word around our children. And I mean, we didn't want to use that word before, but when we became believers, we just set the tone for that. That could be to be. And she did. And but my family was not that way. They didn't use those terms. I mean, not not my immediate, not my father, not my mother, not my grandfather. And they weren't Christians, but I don't know. It was just it was just different. But I'm gonna throw out a couple questions for you. Do you think we all have? We're all susceptible to racist behaviors, oh, and yeah. why? Well, the answer is yes, because we're sinners. He's right. I think the first thought, uh, if somebody you know asks you, "Are you racist?" is to think, "Have I done anything actively racist? Said anything racist? Um, insulted or offended somebody personally or actively?" But you know, we as Christians, we know that. Sin is not just what you commit; it's also yeah. sin of omission. And yes. I think, what you're thinking. yeah, exactly what you're thinking. Yeah. Um, and so, like I would say, my, if I asked my parents, they wouldn't say that they're racist and they haven't done anything actively racist. They talk with people of different ethnicity, different cultural backgrounds, but um, they've chosen to live in certain areas, you know, that meet. Um, that are majority of their ethnicity, sure. or and you know, and you, you could argue they this is because they have more in common with them, maybe. Um, but um, yeah, even the, your mom has chosen to live in a, a suburban right. neighborhood of Chapel Hill that has sixty percent Chinese, uh, right? Forty percent, forty percent. But it's called the Chinatown of Chapel Hills. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like sure people. Right. Yeah. So um, what what I liked about what Pierre said and Tony Evans talks about this too is that. You know, if we're going to, and this is with any um, issue in our society, we want to see our society change, it has to happen in the church first. And that's what he starts to argue, and I think he makes a great point, because he's saying he, even in the church, we're still, you know, segregated. Right. And so, um, and he talks about how, um, even to this point, there, we've reached tolerance, of, of different diverse cultural backgrounds. But like Pierre said, we aren't yet at the point. Now, there are, I think there are certain churches that are implementing this, but um, speaking for the majority of churches in America, um, we aren't at the point where we are um, celebrating and actively seeking the strengths of having a diverse body. Um, 
and he, he talks about that more in his book, um, how tolerance isn't enough, you know, but to actively seek to um, appreciate and, and use the, the strengths that come from, come from different backgrounds, and not just color, you know. This is sometimes even just being from different places in the U.S., you know, different skill sets. And, and so, educational level. Right, right. So, um, so I think a good, you know, question is how can we how can we do that better? And it's a tough question. It's a very very complicated question. I want to move towards that question. Uh, the next one being a statement with follow-up questions. It sounds as if apathy is no longer an option. But would you agree that intentionally seeking reconciliation will look differently for different people? Yeah. What is that? Can someone flesh that out for us? I think the first one with, with the uh, concept is that getting people to think that there's a need for reconciliation. Mm. And I think one of some of the points that I had because. Um, um, I spoke, I spoke with David one day about some of the stuff, and he asked, he was like, what are some ways going forward that we can do? Like how to, um, what, was, what was the word you said? Just what was the question? And, yeah, like how to intentionally seek that. And um, I think first, obviously, is to pray corporately as a church for these issues. To pray for discernment when it comes to them, to pray that it will reveal our personal sin and prejudices and racism that we don't see, um, because I don't think that that happens enough. I don't, and I think we, as a church, try to ignore it and just like, oh, you know, we may mention a little bit here and there, but then it's just like, well, let's just put it to bed because we don't want to bring it up and bring in all the ugly. But in order to be unified, sometimes we do, we have, I mean, it's not going to be pretty. You know, it's not going to be just glamorous and ideal. It's going to, you know, um, it's going to reveal our sin. And that is a hard thing for us. And so I think one thing is to, to obviously pray for discernment and talk more about these issues, kind of like what we're doing now. And then long term, like actively trying to reach people. Um, from different areas, and there's this uh, Christian artist that we listen to. He's kind of like R&B. I don't know what you want to call it, but he's really good. His name's Kristen Gray, and the church he goes to in Ohio, um, they actually merged a black church and a white church together, and so they have a black pastor and a white pastor. I'm not saying we need to do that, but what we they had did that at one time. What, <laughs> churches and merge them together and so their worship styles like you know some days they may be a little more contemporary some days they may be a little bit more upbeat and loud but they they have incorporated and they talk about these issues and they come together and they flesh them out and I think we should do that as the church just come and, and have these conversations and um, and try to reach people in the community that are different from us and um, so I think sometimes it's easy to stay in our comfort zone. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a couple things going on there. As you were talking. One is you need to be willing to be 
unsettled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people, would, that will be, that's a pretty hard road to hoe mm-hmm. to get them to be willing to be unsettled. Yes. But you have, kind of hard. So you have to yeah. start with prayer and you have to talk about it at certain levels. Uh, and then the other, the other, the other problem that I think the, the American church has experienced is the attempt to have minority cultures come in and worship with the majority culture is not easy mm-hmm. uh, because everybody's comfortable with where they are. Mm-hmm. So you, you, we've got to be willing to make everybody uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, but it, but before we can do that, we've got to get everybody willing to be made uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my son, they have sister churches, and it's an all-black church in Cary. No, the church they're all black churches in Raleigh. He's in Raleigh. Okay. They exchange. They, 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 they come in and leave the whole service. And these mm-hmm. are people from the mainly from the north. And uh, but it's just the music is great. And I mean, there's just a lot of great things in pastoring. But they just want. It's just been a wonderful setup for them. And then Cole will go to their church and preach. And to, and that's what they're trying to do. And this is a PCA. They're working on. Trying to have a lot more interaction than we do. Trying to find answers about these things, but that—that's a good point, Marissa, that you said that we have to allow the Lord to search our hearts and and let Him really see. I was going to say one more thing too. The the last thing I'll say about it, but I think the other thing too, um, and I don't want to go too deep in this because that could be a whole another topic. But I think as the church, we've become too politicized, and that also hurts us when it comes to these issues because we're not thinking in a gospel sense. We're thinking in a political sense of I'm on this party, I'm on this side, and those issues are, you know, like. Predominantly white cultures, is, those That's issues are the Democrat yeah. issue, and those are the worldly issues. We don't even talk about that. But I'm like, no, these are biblical issues. These are sin issues. We talk about, we, we confront homosexuality, we confront abortion, we confront all of these big ticket or big hot issues, but why are we not confronting this sin? Because it is a sin if we look at it in, from a biblical view, and I think we have to try to disassociate ourselves from and that's like just extremely difficult but saying all right let's stop looking at this as a democrat versus republican northern southern whatever you want to say it is just this is let's look at this from from biblical standpoint let's search scripture and see what it says about this and um let's talk about it from that standpoint and i think once we kind of step back and do that it might help um I think, um, like from Matthew 20, 28, where, I mean, God chose to submit himself to human flesh, you know, with limitations, right? And he chose to be a servant when he could have asked us to serve him. And I think oftentimes when people in positions of power or a majority culture where you're functioning in your comfort zone, um, you know, it just, it's like, you, I don't know, I guess until I went to Thailand, right, there were very few times in my life where I, I ever had to get out of my comfort zone, 
Um, and it does, it's, it feels weird at first and uncomfortable. Um, but I think we have to consciously, people of majority cultures have to consciously make decisions that will put them in positions to feel uncomfortable um, or it won't happen, you know, like, and another thing I guess I learned from being on a church staff um, of a church that's seeking to be more ethnically diverse is, you know, we can play, our worship leader could um, put up a song that's, I don't know, more of an R&B song or something like that to appeal to a certain crowd, or we have um, some younger Hispanic um, students coming to our church now, and we could play, you know, and sing a song in Spanish with subtitles for everybody to listen to, or just sing it in Spanish, you know, and um, people can follow along, and that will help for a moment, but it won't shift for any, you know, it won't shift long term. What shifts long term is when people of different ethnicities and different cultures are influencing what song choices, what sermon choices are being made, um, whether that's, you know, an elder board of people from different cultures or a worship team from different backgrounds. That's when things shift long term. Um, or at least that's one solution, so we potentially. Can, we can address a lot, and I still have a lot of questions that we we'll probably have to wait for uh, the continued conversation. The last question that I have tonight, and then we'll uh, I'll let you speak and we'll wrap it up. Um, but what would you like to see Grace Community Church look like or do within the next three to five years? What, what sorts of things? We talked about practical steps, but now what would the end goal look like a few years down the road? I think that the end goal is to have a body of believers that, you know, no matter the background, that come and worship together and to hear the gospel. But with that being said, hopefully one that reaches out to our communities, you know, and I mean, you, like you said, I think um, you said it earlier just about people, you know, like to worship certain style and ways, and that has a lot to do with it. But if people come to know the gospel, a lot of times we're, we, we come together, you know, despite what we may think is different in our worship style. Because, you know, like when Pierre and I first became believers, we started going to a Reformed Baptist Church. That was completely different than anything that I had ever gone to, ever. I grew up going to a PCUSA church with my grandparents one weekend and a African-American church another weekend that lasted like three hours every Sunday. And two yeah, don't very go different, three hours. no, I don't either, trust me. That wasn't our focus at first. Like we were like, we want to hear the gospel. That's what we came for. Yeah, you're new believers, and we, you're hungry. Right, and, and that's yeah. what we wanted. And we're like, you know, um, that's what that's what matters. But I think the goal would be is to look more like our our community and to look more like our culture. We have a pre a, a large 
predominantly Hispanic culture around us. Um, and they're unreached, and I'm guilty of it. We have neighbors, I'm not by, invited to church, that are Hispanic. And we have Chinese neighbors. Well, I, I did try to invite Shishi one time, but it's a Bible vacation Bible school. But we have Asian neighbors, Chinese neighbors next door, and like, it just reveals my own, you know, sin and me just, well, nonchalantness. But we, we should be trying to embrace and look more like our culture around us or our community around us versus just bits and pieces of it. So I think that's what it should look like. I think you bring up a really good point that um, in order to engage the community around us, we have to go into it, you know, and, and same with the mission work. I mean, to engage a culture that's completely different from you because they need the gospel, you have to move there. You have to give up everything you have here and go and be uncomfortable and live there. Uh, that is the best way to reach those people. And um, I hope, you know, years down the road, you know, hope even soon that um, people in our body would feel that 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 burden um, and that that calling that there are communities around the church that aren't being reached with the gospel, and they feel a calling to perhaps even move into those communities and 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 and. and and live with them, live life with them, and build those relationships. I think one thing I love about Grace that is that they are doing, and I think will continue to help us in, in this, in, in, in bringing diversity to church and, and, and being one in that, is the home groups. I think the home groups are great. And what Pierre said about having these kind of, kinds of conversations frequently, I mean, this is, this is what we're doing right now over a dinner table, and that happens in the home groups. And so I think... Um, facilitating those conversations might be a good way to get them started, um, just to get people, I think, thinking about it and, and talking about it. Um, but it's going to have to definitely happen. These conversations are going to have to happen more than just you know on the pulpit or on Sunday. Sure. And because um, the only people here are the ones there, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, what I love about Grace is, and to keep doing is keep reaching the gospel because that's first and foremost. Um, but when you hear either Reformed Christianity or, you know, you think of John Piper, obviously, you think of John MacArthur, you think of men who are very like, man, these guys, they really preach it. Tim Keller, like, these guys know their word. But there's teachers like the book Tony Evans, and there's other guys like a guy named Eric Mason. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but different, you know, even African-American preachers. And maybe uh, being able to hear maybe from their perspective, um, and being able to hear those voices and just you know, you know maybe like we like he just said facilitating conversations and maybe reading a book and and kind of seeing well what is this perspective because there's obviously there's a lot of really good teaching out there and not just a white man and not yeah and and not and not just piping I love piping book recommendation tell them the book recommendation what's that Piper's book oh yeah love lines so, I mean, it's a really good book, and he confesses to his like, story of racism growing up in South Carolina, but I think reading books like that and being knowledgeable about it, just, and like I said, what we're having right here, this is this is an awesome platform, and you know, I'm very thankful that Grace even wants to have, do, do this, and but not lose sight of the main goal, which is, yeah, so, so.
It's a tough question how you, how you go about because when we did have Sean as an associate pastor, that happened more or less by accident because he was a Campbell student and we knew him and he was, everybody liked him, you know. And, uh, He's preaching. But and all and all those, and all those Sean going and doing he's doing what he wants to do. Yeah, he's doing what he's called. He he's, he's in Washington D.C. And, and you know, but even in Washington D.C., his church is mostly white. Because mm -hmm. uh, he's a black man, but he's got a lot of white characteristics. You know, so he so he's a little different. Uh, so this is a tough, tough call. How do you, how do you, how do you get there? That's the question. And I think that, that Tom's point is you, you got to get into the you got to get into the culture. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think a, a, an easy an easy way to do it would be to get uh, a well known black pastor to come speak. Mm -hmm. Not not one time, but, yeah. but have like a week thing. You know, we, we've had things that lasted three, four days. In, in, when we first started, we had things go on. Different, we had different speakers for like three or four days. But but maybe have a group uh, to come talk about these things uh, and invite and invite the entire community to come. Uh, and then when you get when you get some African American people in the area or Hispanic people in the area, but there's yeah, then you learn more about them. They come in and then we get to know them and. Maybe we have a meal mm -hmm. before we have the thing, and, mm -hmm. and then you then you get to know people, and you can you can get on a personal level and you say, "We'd love to have y'all come visit and worship with us, and and see what happens." Yeah. I think that's a great first, a great step. Right. Too. Uh -huh. And that's something we can do. That'd be yeah. easy. That's not a hard thing. We love eating, <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and, that's, and, that, and that doesn't cause a lot of Discomfort. Mm -hmm. Nobody, somebody might be. <laughs> oh, yeah, there'll be some. But, but very few people get upset by that. Right. Very few people. And if people get upset by that, then, well, then so it's their problem. Tom also asked earlier, like, we were involved at UNC, and UNC's pretty diverse student body population up there. But we were involved with international students. So, Jim was saying earlier, like, there is. Yeah. We did a, um, a cross exchange program, mm -hmm. but I, I mean, I think it would be great if Grace knew about that program and like we encourage people to be involved with Guac, but are we encouraging or do we have something set up where we can engage and get to know some of the international students? Like we could, sure. you know. Well, we got the, uh, we got the Kings Outreach people, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Surely they can well, connect to somehow. They they're focused not so much on international. I understand, but they they on campus. They're on campus. And they they could get mm -hmm. they get make the students right. Yeah, they can make the connection. Yeah, and David Cal, oh, yeah. he goes over there and all the time on campus doing stuff. But yeah, I think that's a, that's an easy way to find out what is the international student um, presence at Campbell. And what organizations are responsible for them, mm -hmm. and do they have any needs? Yeah. Like international friends at UNC, they just need churches to offer space for them to meet at sometimes. Yeah. 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 So that's just a way international students got exposed, you know, church and church members mm -hmm. and built relationships. And they do a big thing. 
well, they do dinners every other Friday dinners. for the mm-hmm. club, but that, that's, um, again, that's they do Thanksgiving, cool. like, home, like, a home hosting mm-hmm. where if people are having a meal and want to have an international student for dinner, and I think that's how we expose our children, right, to people of different cultures and backgrounds. Um, well, everybody was saying, too, we, we did that one a few times, this has been probably eight or nine years ago, and people were saying, well, where are you from, you know, to, and of course they're from the United States, I mean, they were from the United States, but we did that, there was a program to reach out to them, but a lot of these things, the mall got dropped because there was nobody to do it. What happens, but right, but I'm seeing that, that that's coming forth the heart for it, so then God works through that, hopefully, right. more corporately than individually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. You know, sometimes you have to have your heart pricked, yeah. oh, definitely. Yeah. And that's what we could do with some of this stuff, mm. I think. And people would just get somebody like a Tony Evans. We'd have people come. Yeah. We'd, 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 we'd have people driving in from Raleigh and Durham. And we get their building paid off, so we can have a big one. Charge dollars first. And this, in the culture in which we currently live, and the tension in which we we're experiencing, heavy tension in the country right now. Uh, the divisiveness is greater than I've seen. Long time. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty bad. I think you'll get people, heavyweight people like that, who are willing to do that kind of thing mm-hmm. because they know that this is where we are. This is a bottom. We've had some at, at Campbell, not from a biblical standpoint, but other standpoints that have come mm-hmm. to campus and spoken mm-hmm. this year. And um, it, it's been good. There have been a lot of negativity around it, but there's been some good to, sure. to it. And a sure. lot of um, students have expressed a lot of things that they didn't realize mm-hmm. before after hearing these speakers, and it's really just uh, encouraging to hear that. So I think having speakers like this, or pastors or whatever, it, it really does help. Because it sometimes just takes one thing for That's someone cool. to say, and then someone just like, wow, I didn't realize that. Well, you all did not disappoint. I appreciate you opening your home to us. Yeah, yeah. Yes, thank, thank, thank you. Thank you. The food was delicious. Yeah, the, food was really good. the fellowship was fine. <laughs> <laughs> this is certainly only the, uh, the beginning of an ongoing conversation. And one thing I'm going to propose with the elders as well as uh, taking Grace Grace Matters is uh, typically there's going to be three, four, maybe five months out of the year that has a fifth Wednesday. Uh, I want to continue this discussion of minority or diversity at, at least once a year and address it so that corporately we can continue to uh, to push forward. I just wanted to share a quick little thing that I thought was fascinating when I read Revelation 7, 9 through 12. You know, you get a glimpse of the perfect church, right, at the end. And it talks about people from every nation and tribe and tongue, right? And... And and there you see the perfect church, you know, that it's not focused on having the right type of, you know, worship from every single culture. Mm-hmm. It focuses on Christ, right, yes. on the Lamb. Yeah. And it's interesting because he talks about there people holding palm branches. 
And you know, that's that's a Jewish yeah. tradition. Right. You know, and but yet you have people from everywhere. And ultimately God determines the culture of the church, you know, of the believers and so I I think this was a really great discussion. I think Pierre talked about it multiple times just reminding us that, you know, whatever direction we go, um, you know, the goal is to is to glorify Jesus in, in all this. It's all about Jesus. We can't go wrong, you know, as long as we continue to hold that as our main focus. Right. listening to audio from Grace Community Church located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.